Radio shows you love from the people you know. This is Sand Talks Technology. Hello, good afternoon. How are we all? It's Wednesday, yes. Welcome to the show. We're back. Uh, it's not snowing. It's sunny outside. We are fine and it's warm in the studio. And I'm really pleased to tell you I'm joined today by two good friends of mine. First of all, uh, I was going to say to my left, but you won't know that, so it doesn't really matter. Um, joining me today is Lucy Adams. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Sam. So for those of you who don't know Lucy, Lucy is the CEO of a brilliant new business, well new, we'll find out how new in a minute, called Disruptive HR. Uh, she was the former uh, head of HR for the BBC. And my co-host today and good friend is Ewan Semple. Hi Ewan. Hi there Sam. Uh, um, well, let's find out from Lucy first a little bit about yourself and then we'll find more about you because those who listened in the past obviously heard you in. So uh, let me first of all start with Lucy. Lucy, um, Disruptive HR, what is it? Who is it? Well, what do you do? So we're not that new, actually. We've been going about four years now, which kind of scares me. When in startup, well, that's ancient now, it yes. It really is, isn't it? Yeah, part of the legacy now. So, uh, yeah, we set it up four years ago because we had had enough of HR. And, um, you know, people who work in organisations very often moan about their HR departments. And having been an HR director, I can see why they did. And so we wanted to just find different ways, new ways of doing the people side of business, the leadership, the engagement, the management, the development, just doing those in very much more innovative, uh, exciting and ways that are relevant for today's business world rather than perhaps something that we would have experienced in the 80s and 90s. So that's what we do. We work with business leaders and, and HR professionals all over the world now. Okay. Uh, and you have a book out, which you brought out yesterday, I believe. Yeah, so it's not been out that long. But it's still number one on Amazon. <laughs> it hey. certainly is. It certainly is. Well, let's, it's, it's not a John Grisham, all right? This is, you know, in the oh, HR Oh, come section. on, don't spoil the last chapter. <laughs> so it's only number one in the HR section, so I don't want to get too carried away. But yeah, it's the second book, actually, because the first one we put out a couple of years ago, which just, again, gave HR a kind of rationale for why they needed to change and gave them lots of ideas about how to do it, what they should be doing. But if you're an HR professional and you want to change, and a lot of them do, a lot of them know that what they're doing for business isn't quite right, actually there's an awful lot of obstacles. You've got leaders who don't want to change, you've got employees who might be stuck in their way, you've got your own team who's stuck in their ways, and you've also got obstacles of time pressures and cost pressures and so on. So what we wanted to do was provide a really practical guide. And so that's what it is. It's called the HR Change Toolkit. And uh, that's out on Amazon. Ewan, so um, give everyone a quick praise of your background. Well, so I too used to be at the BBC, but uh, a long time Can ago. Can I just say, I never was at the BBC. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there you go. There's yeah, my disclaimer. Long time ago in a different life. But these days I help organisations deal with the impact of technology on how we work. And, and some of the issues that Lucy mentioned are very much the sort of things I get involved in as well. And if I was going to ask you, Lucy, I mean, you're saying that clearly there's a lot of issues that HR have been challenged by. What sort of approaches are you talking about in the book that, that make it different? Well... What we know is that um, HR have typically been very parental, so it's either the kind of nursemaid trying to do everything for people, or it's the compliance officer, you know, the kind of the rules and the policies. And, and so what we advocate is moving to a much more adult-to-adult -adult relationship with, uh, with their organisation and 
working on the basis of trust, working on the basis of believing that people are capable of using their own judgment and managing their own lives. The second area is really about instead of one size fits all, so we see HR teams typically, and HR is not just the only ones guilty of this, but, you know, one size fits all processes where in our human lives actually we expect a degree of personalization customization so that's what we advocate mm -hmm. um and then thirdly we're dealing with human beings and yet majority of processes that hr people put in place are not based around how human yeah. beings actually think feel behave or intrinsically <laughs> motivated you only have to look at things like the annual appraisal to know uh, that actually that's not how human beings are, are actually encouraged to perform better so so we advocate starting with the human and working back that's a very kind of simplistic view but obviously we apply that to every aspect of the employee life cycle interesting and you, and you say that the, the hr are not alone in that and and technology can be part of the problem as well in the oh, sense that absolutely. I've been amazed having come out of the BBC and other companies just how much IT is part of HR and business systems and it's all and, regulated and, and structured. You know, you'll and get HR people that do want to do something interesting, mm -hmm. do something different. I don't know, let's take a stupid example like we're going to set up a WhatsApp group rather than cascade communication by email. We're going to make it more... It, yeah. know, IT won't let us. Right. Uh, we're going to look at something like, you know, workplace by Facebook as a means of doing our learning and development instead of having putting people on courses. Yep. Tech won't let us. IT won't let us. So, <coughs> so yeah, we're not the only we're not the not the only function that's guilty of that kind of policing role. No, I had a friend who was working with a corporation to improve their communications, and she first of all went out to just see what they were doing and what was working, and she found a sizable group of staff on Facebook in a closed group, relatively secure, having grown up conversations about how to do work better. Went back with this bit of information, thinking they'd be delighted, and they closed the group down because they thought I'd use Facebook <laughs> yeah, at work. Exactly, you know, yeah. you know, it amazes me. You know, we have uh, <laughs> I'll meet with chief execs or, or you know senior business leaders who say, "Oh no, you know, we don't allow social media at work, mm -hmm. or you know, we don't allow access to the to the certain websites and things." I was working with a, a police force who shall remain nameless, but you know, there were certain websites that they weren't allowed to look at. So they were they were trying to investigate stuff around gambling, some kind of gambling scam and they were having to go on to sites on their own phones because they weren't allowed well, that, to use these things at work and it's like really? Yeah. That's the thing, they say they've banned them but I say well have you taken people's phones from yeah, them exactly. because if not you haven't banned anything yeah. but I had one organisation who said yes we do um, so I think what? Was yeah. They take their phones off them? Yep, it was an insurance company I think it was and they had uh, cubicles, you know, little boxes where they were meant to put their mobile phones before they walked into That's work. just crazy, mm -hmm. I mean I did a consultancy gig at BT and BT have a, a similar policy everything's locked down certain sites and you say to them but we're, we're doing research we have to get access to it and they say well go across to the cyber cafe and just go and do yeah, it there exactly. hang on you're BT you have access to all of this and yeah. I mean the other one that people struggle I mean, I'm talking maybe 10 years ago was kids and you're talking about phones multitasking mm -hmm. oh no you can't multitask no one could be doing Facebook and answering and doing this and now you look at call centers like you know half of them have got a you know a facebook messenger type screen going on so having a chat communication with a customer while chatting to another one you know the world has moved on 
And it has, although there is hmm. evidence to suggest that multitasking means you take that. twice as long to do the two tasks. That Women you have never said that. <laughs> <laughs> Just thought I'd point that out. Always been told by my wife that it's not possible for men, but easily for women. Sorry, I interrupted. You can't do it. It's just that actually it can take a little bit longer. I will tell her tonight. <laughs> but actually the call centres are a really good example because, I mean, I find this, even when I'm doing a chat interaction with some kind of call support centre, you can tell that they're not paying attention. You know, they'll go off and drift off and get more interested in somebody else's conversation <laughs> than yours, you know. And, and I celebrate and say thank you for this, the call centres that treat me like a grown-up and will actually talk to me. And, and I think, you know, that's partly the thing with HR as well, that <clears throat> everything's become, become so systematised and so yeah. technology-driven that we've kind of lost that ability to build relationships, even in a call centre, which we, we want. Yeah. So, okay, let's let's have a look at... Uh, so, HR, it, you say it's changing. Is it is it changing rapidly? Is it changing slowly? When you go out on your consultancy, which is really, you know, how you sell your services, are, are, are you being embraced with, oh, come on in, Lucy, we want to change the culture, we, we really want to embrace this new way of working, or is it... Well, someone's told me that I have to come and see you. Uh, and, you know, is it, is it a case of you're the jobs worth that has to be done? Yeah. Or no, are I you mean, embraced? It's changing. Okay. Um, slowly, but it's changing. So four years ago, I mean, we called ourselves Disruptive HR, which was deliberately provocative. You know, this wasn't about incremental change. This was a fundamental rethink. And we would be asked to go in and do keynote speeches. They would say things to me like, you know, can you come in and provoke us? But don't be too provocative. Yeah, yeah, you know, kind of yeah the, don't poke the bear too much. Yeah, exactly. You know, what are you going <clears> to <throat> say? Give me all the bullet points you're going to say. Now they, and, and, and after the keynote, they would go, that's brilliant, but it's not quite ready. You know, it's not quite us. It's, we're not quite ready. Now they are inviting us in and they're saying, no, we know we need to change and we want help to do it. But why? Why now? Why, what, what are they seeing that says change has to happen because i mean yeah, we can talk about the whole disrupted world the vuca world you know there's all these VUCA world. okay stop i don't know what that means <laughs> i'm looking at my feet thinking have i got bunions it's a <laughs> what was that vuca world sorry so yes. vuca is a is a horrible business cliche it sounds which it. stands for volatile uncertain complex and ambiguous world which was actually uh, came about in the vietnam war Okay. Because, and funnily enough, I'm watching an amazing documentary on Vietnam at the moment, uh, where you realise that the, the just the whole game changed. So you remember the sort of you know the old days of warfare. You knew who the enemy mm. was. They had a different uniform to you. You kind of had fields of of engagement where yeah. the battles would happen. And Vietnam changed that. And and the American army realised over the course of that war that they had to fundamentally change the way that they ran their army. I mean, you're yes. military, so you know yeah. some of the things that came from that. Well, so it is with the business world. And, you know, every company that we meet, regardless of sector and pretty much regardless of geography, is needing four things. They are needing to be more agile because pace of change, competing priorities, new things coming onto the market, customers' expectations. They're looking for more um, innovation to disrupt the market, fend off market disruptors just to stay ahead of the competition. They're looking for more collaboration internally. So old silos, tribal behaviour, which you will remember you and the BBC was amazing <laughs> at. Yep. Uh, 
kind of where we could get away with having our own budgets, our own resources, not really talking to each other very much. Well, those geographical or functional boundaries make less and less sense because the customer doesn't care where it comes from. They just want the best yeah. possible experience. The inside-out view. Exactly. Mm. And finally, more productivity, more for less, more efficiency, financial pressures. So those four, agility, innovation, collaboration, productivity, every company needs that. And we can't keep saying that the world around us is changing and those demands are increasing and yet keep leading, managing and developing our people like we were in the 1980s. So I think that some of those old approaches, whether it be the annual appraisal or the annual engagement survey or old approaches to policies and rules, maybe they never really worked, but we could kind of get away with it. I think the changing nature of the disrupted world has brought it into sharp focus that they don't work. So give me a good example of a company that does work. Not not one that you happen to work with, maybe, or maybe it is. But just give me a com- example of a company out there that's done something innovative that's changed. So I'll give you a couple of examples. One is a new company, um, and you know clearly we are told that the Silicon Valley crew uh, are amazing employers. They are wacky and different, and you know, Actually, you scratch the surface of some of there that they're not that innovative and progressive. But I do think that Netflix is an example of an organisation that we can look to that was genuinely progressive. And what they did was to say, you know what, as we grow, we do not want to become just like another corporate. Because that's very often the case with startups. They they want to be different. They want to create a different environment for their people. And then as they grow and as they scale up, they start putting in processes, policies, frameworks. Uh, they hire more HR people, and they. But suddenly, isn't that you know, isn't that command and control? Fundamentally, you can't can't manage when the numbers get to the sizes of companies like Netflix. How do you manage that? Well, I think what 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 they would argue, and what I would subscribe to, is that in a disrupted world, the old command and control structures rarely work because you are having to, instead of just having a passive and compliant workforce you need people who are going to speak up, who are going to challenge, who are going to respond to customers' needs. You can't legislate in your rules and policies for every eventuality you have to have people who are capable of thinking for themselves rather than waiting to be told what to do because the world is changing and that 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 kind of uh, rhythm and that um, pace of business is just too fast moving now you have to have a different type of worker so Netflix took an approach where they said you know what we're not just going to be like every other corporate we're going to have freedom within a framework we're going to have rules I'll give you an example their approach to um, expenses policy one line, do the right thing by Netflix. Not, you can claim for this, but not on a Tuesday, only if you've got, you know, if there's an hour in the month and all the usual stuff that we get. Because what they wanted was for people to make the right call, to make the right decision, rather than it being mandated from the centre. Um, so that's, I think, an example of a company that's incredibly progressive and okay. have, have tried to do it at how, scale. How big are they nowadays? Do you know, I don't know, but they are obviously sizable. Um, they're no longer that agile little startup. Mm, I was going to ask what the cut-off is, because 
and also the prospect of the big existing companies to reinvent themselves. And I, I they find it a lot harder. Yeah, I sometimes they feel do like it, find it harder. Yeah. yeah, I mean, obviously, I worked at the BBC as you as did you. Twenty thousand mm. people, sixty thousand freelancers. But I think the answer is not to try and change the whole organisation, no. but to try and to get uh, go where the energy is, work in with change in the smaller areas, use digital or the online team as a means of spearheading and pioneering some of that disruption and those changes um, but don't try and do it top down try and do yeah. it you know in a more kind of guerrilla fashion but that in itself terrifies many of them and, and I think the problem is once you get to a certain scale there are sizable risks that are counterintuitive to deal with in that way and also there are you, you, you tend to recruit managers who still see the world and you know once you get big enough you recruit conventional traditional managers who then try to manifest the world in the way that they're Yeah, and, and I, I'm not suggesting this is easy, mm. all right? So moving away from the parenting that we've had traditionally is not easy, but the benefits are huge. You know, we work with organisations that have uh, encouraged leaders to make their own judgments rather than it being always mandated, uh, encouraged employees to respond and use their judgment um, based on the situation and the context at hand. They are much more likely to be able to cope and thrive in a disrupted world than those that yeah. wait to be told to do so. So I think the benefits are massive, but it's scary. And of course, reputational risk, financial sure. risk are all sorts of things that most CEOs and lead, you know, I've been on those boards where mm. it is scary if something goes wrong. However, there, we're not talking about creating an environment of anarchy. You're not a you know a hippie commune. We're trying to create an environment where people are capable of using their judgment more effectively, which actually makes you safer. And you check, and you you know so you audit, you check. You're not allowing people just to have a free for all and do whatever they want, but you aren't saying but we are going to have all the answers for every situation in the centre and here's our list of policies yeah. and rules. Because actually I think that's more dangerous because you then have people that are saying, well, I, you know, I, was, I did what I was told to do yeah. and actually it was wrong for that context. So I mean, since I'm going back to the BBC and, and pre-John Burt, if you like, to me it was a complex organism with lots of very opinionated, thoughtful, bolshy people who worked well together as a network and, and had a lot of flexibility and a lot of creativity and the, the very fact they managed to manage creativity in a technologically intense environment was, was part of the cleverness of the BBC. But it then imported a sense of business efficiency which mitigated against that and you know, I think any organisation sort of has to find its own optimal level and I know the scale up that we've been talking about with the, the startups when they get to that critical size where they start to recruit HR managers. Mm -hmm. They've got to be very careful that they don't tip into that old world, if you like. Completely. And, you know, we do see this with startups where they they wanted to be agile, exciting, energetic, responsive to customer needs. And yet something happens that at the point where they usually where the, the, the chief exec suddenly doesn't know everybody who gets into comes into the office in the morning you know they kind of have this sense of like we need structures and we need processes and and i'm not saying they don't but what i am saying is that the risk is is that you then try and recreate 
and become like every other corporate. And what we're seeing in corporates is they are looking to the startups and saying, we want a bit of that energy, we want a bit of that agility. So it's a happy medium. And I think, you know, moving to a parental approach doesn't have to be wholesale, big chucking out every rule and policy. I'll give you an example, a TD bank in the States. What they did was that they took an approach where they said to their people, which are the rules and the policies that get in the way of you doing your best work, that get in the way of you wowing customers? Customers. So it wasn't just like, you know, which are the rules, we're just going to chuck the rule book out, but asking employees which are the ones that frustrate them. Now, I worked in the rail industry years ago, and it was amazing because the rail industry is, you know, centuries old. And over the years, in response to every incident, something had happened. Therefore, let's produce a rule and a policy to make sure that can never happen again. And taking that kind of lowest common denominator approach, instead of dealing with the individual, you apply a rule and a policy to everybody. And actually what you'd ended up with was a rule book that was practically unworkable. You'd got rule blindness where people, you know, they didn't know which rule to follow. And I remember one guy, um, it was up in Nottingham, and and he was a brilliant, brilliant um, engineer. And he very often would break the rules. And he said, Lucy, to be a good railwoman, you have to break the rules. And and now that is a highly risky situation. Mm-hmm. So I think moving to a place where, yes, of course, it, it's not about being rule free. We, you know, we, we, of course, have to abide by certain certain rules, frameworks, policies, but to be light touch with it and wherever possible, have a starting point that your people are capable of using their judgment, because the more you treat them like children, the more they'll behave like that. And, and appropriate rules that they can apply. Yeah. Um, so since we last spoke, Sam, I've become a long-distance truck driver. I know. How's the Yorkie bars going? (laughs) I'm trying to keep the weight under control. But I've got all sorts of processes when I'm driving a big truck that are in my interest to stick to. You know, I've got a 15-minute section at the beginning of the day where I go through my vehicle checks. And those vehicle checks matter, and I know they matter, so I'm more than happy to stick with them. But you're right, once, once you start to accrete layers upon layers of rules that people have forgotten the reasons for them in the first place. That's, yeah. Yeah. I have a lovely expression for that. Complexity is fail simplicity. Yeah. Mm, yes. And uh, that's from <clears throat> Edward de Bono. Yeah. Um, now, so going back to that, um, Vince Cerf has created this thing called the People-Centred Economy. Um, the URL is i4j.info. And he, he simply says, I think what you're, you're saying, which is PCE, which is the name of it, stands for People Create and Exchange Value. He's looking for a people-centred organisation rather than a technology-led or whatever. Um, but I'm, I'm going to just change that around. The wisdom of the crowd is really what you're saying at the bottom up, right? I mean, the army has a motto called serve to lead, yeah. which is, you know, saying that the person at the top is actually not really leading. It's, it's a conjuncture to leading. But we've seen recently with, with a number of companies, let's take Google, for example, where uh, employee activism has led to the board changing its mind, really. Mm. Um, is this the way forward? Are we saying, right, OK, it is going to flatten organisations. We're going to go and get to the bottom-up type uh, organisation. But is that just a case of no-one leading and everyone just following? Is it, I mean, is, is it the beginning of chaos? I don't well, know. I mean, the thing, I mean, you, you used the word anarchy earlier on. And, you know, I think anarchism is misunderstood because it, it was the principle of only deferring to hierarchy and, uh, unless absolutely necessary. And that level of autonomy... In networks and you know to get that you need to have people who are educated who are understanding the circumstances who are able to make sensible decisions and so it takes an investment and let's face it we've tended to recruit and encourage compliance 
complacency um, and, and staying safe in our organisations. So unless you've invested in people having a different worldview and taking that level of responsibility, then just pulling out the hierarchy will end up in chaos. But I think the idea of, of you know, a single person at the top of an organisation being able to make the right decisions in a complex world is just naive. Well, I, I, you say that, but let's take Apple. Without Steve Jobs, it's pretty much, we can see, heading towards the bottom again. You know, Dis- disagree. Okay, let's discuss. Um, my point is that, you know, uh, Apple under Scully was doing fine revenue-wise, but innovation-wise was as dull as Ditchwater, who had a Newton, you know. Does anyone remember a Newton? He comes in, scraps all the products, goes to one line, makes that type of leadership from the front and says, follow me over the hill, chaps. This is what we're going to do. Share price goes through the roof. Everyone's happy. Unfortunately, Steve dies. And now we see Tim Cook being a brilliant COO and number two. But he can't innovate to save his life. There isn't a new innovation out of Apple that I would say, oh, my God. I mean, quick test. What phone do you have, Lucy? iPhone 10. Oh, okay. Thanks. For Sorry, me. I am. Yeah, you, it's pointless coming to me, Sam, because I am. I am basically a walking advert for Apple. Likewise, you're outnumbered, Sam. <laughs> okay, you two talk. But, but, I'll but, just but, sit but, in the corner here. <laughs> but we can talk about because because I, I think my AirPods are the best bit of Apple kit I've ever had. I love my watch intensely. Absolutely. Um, okay, and, and, and my iPad. Okay, so you two outliners. But some of those started with started with Steve Jobs, admittedly. I mean, some of some of that. But you know, Johnny Ive is the main source of that kind of creativity and innovation. Yeah, but and he's stepped out of it as well. Yeah, but I don't. I don't think it's impossible. Well, we'll see. But I, I think they're a fascinating company because they're also smaller than people think in terms of the management structure and the way they run themselves, which is sometimes why they get into trouble. But I think they're interesting in terms of because somebody said the biggest product that Steve Jobs ever designed was Apple. And the way that it's constructed and the attitudes and the behaviours within Apple have made them what they are today. And I think there's a robustness there that people underestimate. Go on, Lisa, you can say. I was going to say that I think we're kind of talking about a number of different things here. I mean, I think, you know, you can point to, uh, you know, a style of leadership um, and, and that being relevant and beneficial for different stages in an organisation's life. You know, you don't want necessarily a consensus-oriented leader if you're in a crisis. You know, I've worked in those kind of situations where um, the leader was ultimately paralysed because they needed to have total agreement and couldn't get it and, um, and didn't, know how to, didn't know how to move forward unless everybody was on the same page. And, and when we were slipping behind and we were paralysed, and, and, and it was wrong. Sometimes, yeah, listen to advice and then make a real hard, focused, laser-like decision and, and go for it. But if you are in that kind of hierarchy, um, charismatic leader-driven, um, no consensus, my way or the highway type type environment for a long period, what you see is that innovation <coughs> starts to decline because so Adobe found this for example they found that actually innovation needed to come not from the innovation department or one or two leaders (laughs) the oxymoron the innovation department the innovation team but actually needed to come from people on the front line now if you're going to create an environment where people are going to put their hand up take a risk um, have a go at, at, at taking something forward um, say you know to put their reputation and to go the extra mile all of those other cliches 
then if you've got a command and control structure that that stamps on you if you make a mistake, then that's not going to that's not going to work. So I think we can look at Apple, we can look at individual companies, but I think generally, yes, of course, it's important to have the right leadership at the right time, but equally, for a disrupted world where you're trying to remain innovative, having one charismatic leader is not sustainable. So are we or, talking... Co- sorry, you. No, Come on. I was just going to say, or even what I call the fetish for um, case study porn, the fact sorry. that everybody, everybody, everybody wants to find that case study of that company that, right. you know... You, you even said, have you got some examples of where this is working? And that, and that slightly worries me because just because it worked for that company or just because it works for Apple doesn't mean it's going to work for you. No, but what, 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 I, what I want to do is sort of, uh, you know, get a stake in the ground to understand because for me, pegging something gives me the ability to at least understand that it that there's a capability of doing it. Yeah, Whether that's... it can't just be theory, can it? You no. Know? And we, you know, we no, have you know, legions of consultants out there that will show us lovely graphs and you know, PowerPoint slides that you know you only need to put this and that and yep. suddenly... Death you know, by PowerPoint. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And, and it's all going to be beautiful. And, and I think the case study is, is or put it another way, the, a story, a practical example can be really helpful for yes. businesses because yes. they can say, oh, yeah, we, I can see that if they've done it, it might give me the confidence to do it. Where, it. where I think it gets out of hand is this idea of best practice. Yes. Because, you know, as we know, Harvard Business School has made a fortune of just kind of, you know, regurgitating case studies mm. of... Uh, sorry, that sounds terribly dismissive. <laughs> I'm sure they do wonderful <laughs> other things. But, but, but it's their model of training, isn't it, that, yeah. that there is perfection <clears throat> and all you need to do is kind of look, work towards it. And, 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 and that you're works, right, that, yeah. that, that doesn't exist. And that works within organisations because... When you talk about innovation, in order to innovate, you have to acknowledge that what you're doing now is broken in some way. And that's really difficult because nobody likes you to blow the whistle on something that's not working. So yeah, yeah. And, and back to my, my poor HR teams, you know, um, yes, I kind of criticise them, but everything I criticise, I have done. And, and, you know, it is very hard to mm. acknowledge that the way you have been doing something for 20, 30 years mm. may may never have worked but certainly doesn't work now yeah. and particularly when there aren't many positive examples that you can say oh it's okay I'll just follow that model or I'll just do what they did um, actually we are asking them to be pioneering and pioneering is scary so so I was going to say do you advocate a speak up culture within corporates or within companies with how okay two, two parts of that question A do you advocate it so can and should people speak up so there's wrong practice. B, how do you enable it so that, you know, your boss doesn't go, oh, not them again, you know. Put your hand down, stop talking. I mean, I was known as Maverick. I was going to say that... <laughs> I'm the that. worst employee ever. <laughs> that kind of was felt, like, really heartfelt, the way you described yes. that. Sadly but true. <laughs> it, 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 I, I, I visualise the rolling eyes now. <laughs> so I think there's two different things there between a speak-up culture, which is around have I, if I see something going horribly wrong, do I feel safe to challenge and have I got the mechanisms for doing that? But what I would advocate, and I think that's absolutely got to be there, but what I would advocate is a conversation culture, which sounds really namby-pamby, but but I, I don't think it's about this kind of, oh, I, you know, I'm a worker and, and I'm going to challenge the bosses. I think it's about creating an environment where people are encouraged to discuss, debate, challenge, because no one's got the answers. 
And if you set up these mechanisms where, you know, you see it, don't you, where the, the boss goes in and they have these sort of breakfast sessions or whatever and, 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 you know, and everyone fires questions at them. Well, what about the responsibilities that the individual employees have as well? So I think it works much better in smaller groups where nothing is, is off limits, where there is a genuine need to discuss and challenge, recognising that we're all human, we're all fallible. But I think if you've got the organisations I see that have got a really powerful conversation culture... Mm. Um, actually, much much less of the former stuff happens. And does that conversation happen technically? You know, is it systems in place mm, like Cody. Slack, which I hate, um, and various like we mentioned Facebook and yeah. whatever? Yeah, can can be. Or I mean, is it face to face? Well, both. But I think it's. I always quote David Weinberger, who once said that conversations can only take place between equals, and and I think he's right at the point of the conversation. If the intention is mutual understanding and a genuine conversation, it will work. Which doesn't mean that everybody in the organisation is equal. You know, senior people have to make tougher decisions and they get paid more for that, and that's that's fine. But I think so much of what we've seen around the conversation culture has been disingenuous. It's not really a conversation. It's just lip it's service, lip service yeah, yeah. to lip the service. idea. Yeah. And. You know, again, the BBC was interesting because we used to joke that a decision was the beginning of the conversation, not the end <laughs> of it. And uh, so it can get enervating. And so if you're a senior person under pressure thinking that things have gone horribly astray, then then your body language is just going to scream at the person who's trying to have a conversation with you that it's a risky thing to do. So I think it takes real courage um, at, at senior levels to have a genuine empathic conversation with somebody else I in the organisation. And, and the need and the uh, ability to listen and be an active listener, a, a genuine listener, mm -hmm. rather than, um, you know, just pretending and, yeah. and just going through the motions. Your, your question about the tech, absolutely. And um, I think, you know, we can see WhatsApp groups being used more and more in organisations. We see uh, things like Slack and Yammer and, and uh, you know, Workplace by Facebook and, and other collaboration tools. But but I think it depends on you know making sure that it, that organisations have have a mix because we've all got very different ways of communicating yep. and different ways of digesting and different ways of of learning and so it's about again not one size fits all. I think there's also again that that issue of you know recognising that if you're if you're if you're only dealing with technolo technologically enabled conversations, that people understand the responsibility that goes with mm -hmm. that. You know, I've been in organisations where people were very very comfortable putting stuff down on an email. That I used to phone them up actually. If I got a real horrible email, I just used to phone them um, and say, "Oh hi, it's Lucy. You know, just got this," and they'd be, "Oh God, sorry. Oh uh, yeah, I've made yeah, but, but people tend to put things. I mean, that's the the problem with social media as well. People will put negativity down within in the digital medium because they don't see the facial expression at the other end and they don't Absolutely. accept... It's too easy. They'd never it's say too... that to your face, would no, they? No, they wouldn't. They really wouldn't. It's the equivalent of, you know, people being angry with you behind a, a car windscreen as opposed to if you walk <coughs> over and have a, try and have a conversation with them. I don't do that, by the way. I'm not that brave. Um, so I, I think that that whole... You know, ethics, morality, mm. uh, just decency and courtesy that that I think is a real scary the way that things are going in terms of the bullying online and that really worries me. But again, that's not about then having an, a bullying policy piece that eventually becomes yet another rule and policy. It's about challenging conversations. Yeah engaging with the individuals who who and, and helping them to see why yeah. this might and, not work and and on the internet generally i mean and, and collectively taking responsibility 
Um, you know, my book had a chapter called We've All Got a Volume Control of Mob Rule and we get to decide what we fan the flames, what we try to put things out, whether we disagree or fight or polarise or whatever. And, you know, there's a, a novelty to it at the moment that people are, you know, finding reasons to fight with each other or saying things, as you say, online that they wouldn't say face to face. But, you know, society eventually can't sustain that. And I think that in the long... You know, and there are many examples of incredible conversations taking place online and things being enabled that would have been But impossible. where? Because... Oh, all, all over the place. Well, I mean. no, I was going to say, because Twitter to me now has become a shouting match. Well, it, pick, it, pick your friends carefully. Well, I try. <laughs> I try. No, well, I, well I've, I've got to the point where I've just gone off Twitter because I just can't be bothered. It's just a stream of noise. So, yeah, so I, I have actually gone on to WhatsApp in a small group. But, but, but that's the point about take, yeah. taking yeah. responsibility in the sense that I've hacked my Twitter network right back down to a very small group of people, which doesn't mean I'm ending up. So can I be a friend there, please? Yeah, yeah, you're still in there. <laughs> but, you know, because I need to manage my online environment so that I get value out of it. Just that, as you would if you were down the pub. It, you I was just going to say, it's yeah. exactly the same thing. There's nothing new in this. And I get slightly frustrated when people see it as a technological problem or talk about, oh, the internet's doing this or social media's doing that. No, we're doing that. And if we don't like what we're doing, and this is again true within organisations, unless you allow people to have grown up conversations about the consequences of the way they're behaving online or off, then you'll never arrive at that mutually beneficial circumstance. Yeah, I think we're just building new norms. I think we've broken down society's hmm. old norms. Technology has just come in, as you said, disruptively, just broken it all apart. And now we're going, um, how can we fix this and make yeah. our new norms? Yeah. But, um, one thing I wanted to cover um, it was bro culture. Um, so within an organisation, it's certainly American organisations, Google very famously had that yeah. bro culture uh, email that went round. You know, uh, we, we, we sort of laud the Silicon Valley, you know, break it fast, you know, fix it and uh, cu culture. But bro culture is predominant. How, how do we stop bro culture? Yeah, I mean, probably asking a... 50-year-old woman's probably not not, uh. <laughs> not going to be the most of... Um, but I'll, I'll give you my take for, for what it's worth. I think that um, you know, we've seen, particularly in the tech startup world, because I know people who work in, the, in these areas, that it has predominantly attracted... Um, the kind of frat house feel. Yes. Yeah? yeah. So it's, you know, it's beers and foosball tables and it's guys What did, what did you famously call it? Just putting beanbags down, I think. <laughs> no, I call it the Google beanbag problem. Yes. <laughs> um, and what I think is it's it's a, a subset of a, of a broader issue about the sort mm. of the male workplace. So... Um, there's a company called GoDaddy. So they're, yep. uh, yeah, you know them, so they're big web Try never to use them. But actually, they did some really innovative stuff in this whole area. Oh, OK, that's, yeah. that surprises me. Yeah, well, they, they really did. They really did. So they, they looked at things like um, the language that was used. Let's say that somebody had a performance review, their annual appraisal, the dreaded annual appraisal. But they looked at every form that had been completed for every woman, every man, and what they found was that it was, uh, you know, women were being called aggressive, whereas the men who did, showed similar traits were being called dynamic. Um, they looked at the data to talk, to really understand what kind of culture they had. They looked at what they called micro-exclusions. So micro Explain that a bit more, yeah, please. So yeah, so micro-exclusions are if somebody um, is 
if the guys are wanting to play foosball every five minutes, if they're asking you to, you know, to kind of, do you want to come along for a beer? If it happens once, it's kind of okay. But if you've actually been treated in a slightly male guy bro culture way all day as a female it's exhausting you don't want to be around that you either says the woman who loves much of the day and <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sorry i'm just gonna point that out but we're gonna break I, all I, the stereotypes I, here because i'm the other way around because i don't i'm not part of sports culture right so i was at a party sorry with, Liz, you had to with, say that with some school parents and uh ended up with a bunch of blokes talking about sport yeah. Um, cracking borderline misogynist jokes. And I'm not, yeah. I'm can't and do that I, either, no. I walked away from it. Yeah, yeah. But, but actually, frankly, after the Me Too campaign, I'm not going to walk away the next time. Yeah. I'm going to say, you know what, guys, really this isn't acceptable. You know? Of, you know, where you've got these, you know, micro exclusions, these little things that are happening to people. And it's not just affecting women. Absolutely no. not. Yeah. So, um, what's interesting with the tech companies, though, is that they are increasingly recognizing that, surprise, surprise, a lot of their customers are female. A lot of their customers are not of of that ilk who want to be who want to be served by those kind of people who so actually they need to bring in different types of people into their organization they need to behave in different ways and it's going to be those small little behavioral pieces the conversations it's not the big policy stuff it's those little um so little I, behaviors i've got a friend who works in hr in canada who sent me a document recently just to sense check for him because he was wading into the whole social justice gender balance issue and it's provoked a backlash so I'm getting a bit tired of middle-aged white guys coming up to me and expecting sympathy because they're having such a hard time these days and the more rigid either side becomes the more polarised things become and the less likely we are to, to find an outcome and it would be a nightmare if we tried to write policies in all our, our organisations to manifest this but how do we, you know in the role of HR, I think that's one of the key roles is to help an organisation work out how to achieve an appropriate gender, race, age It's so balance. true. So um, I was at the BBC when we had the Jimmy Savile scandal and, uh, you know, horrendous, obviously horrendous time for um, victims and people who had, you know, been in, um, involved in, in similar types of incidents. Terrible, terrible period. On On the back of that we tried to look at how can you um, kind of formalize your approach to bullying and harassment in the workplace and to make sure that we were truly reflecting um, the organization's needs and wants around that to ensure that this kind of thing could never happen again in the future either on on the kind of scale and enormity of Savile but also lesser um, bullying and harassment style behaviors and we got large groups of staff together and we talked to them about, you know, can you define bullying? Can you define harassment? And it was fascinating because people on the bullying side would say things like, you know, yeah, bullying is being shouted at. So you'd go, OK, so is that something we should have in our policy? With You know, no shouting. And then one of the others would say, well, what if you were about to do something that was unsafe and someone shouted at you? Or what about if a newsreader hasn't got the right script and they're about to go on air in, in 10 seconds? You know, ha mm. would that be... Well, that would kind of be acceptable, wouldn't it? Yeah. And so you come back to this idea of how can you put things in place in the centre for every single context? It's really hard. Re and I think you shouldn't stop trying to talk about it, but actually... What we found was that 
again, this freedom within a framework, mm-hmm. it's about encouraging discussion and debate. And I think you're absolutely right, Ewan, is that if, if we get to a place where we have a lot of guys who are absolutely terrified of saying or doing the wrong thing, this stuff goes underground yep. and ultimately becomes less collaborative, engaging workplace with men and women together. Yeah. And it becomes much harder to get that understanding of each other's position because no one's talking about it. So I think that's really worrying. And I think that's one of the opportunities of the online environment because it's visible. And my experience inside the BBC doing this sort of stuff was once you have a conversation that's open, that's seen by a lot of people and you're seen to be working things out, then they learn from that. I mean, we learn from conversations and we have... You know, our brains work better with those sorts of patterns than they do with a rule in a rule book that nobody ever looks at. And and I think that the skill of management is encouraging those types of robust, mature conversations. And, you know, you mentioned paternalism earlier. The trouble is at the moment we wait for the, the grown-ups to tell us what the rules are and tell Absolutely. us off when we've broken them. You know? I mean, a good example, and we talked about being having people feeling that, um, that they can speak out, up or out if they see something that was wrong. So the BBC had a, a really robust um, grievance policy. So if I felt that you, Sam, were bullying me, I would um, have a very clear process. You'd just to... go and get Bob, wouldn't you? <laughs> I would have a very clear process for... Uh, you know, taking out a grievance on you, it being heard by an independent third party and so on. And, and so, you know, fine. What we realised, though, in talking to people was that they didn't want to take that nuclear option of no. the grievance. What they wanted was for the behaviour to stop. This person didn't want their boss to get sacked. What they wanted was for that person just to understand it made them feel a bit uncomfortable. Yeah. So we realised that actually having the robust policy for grievance of course you have to have it there as a last resort, but we put more money, more investment into mediation and helping people to have a better conversation. Yeah, because... Uh, sorry, just going back to the Savile thing, I remember one of the things that was said <clears throat> was that people were aware of what Savile was doing, but they wouldn't speak yeah. up. And, and and he would turn around and say, do you know who I am? I'm a personality in this place. I will get you fired. So... Has that culture changed now within the BBC? I'm not asking you to speak for the BBC, obviously, but do you think it has changed? Well, I mean, we, we did a lot of research at the point where the whole Savile crisis exploded and, and gratifying... I mean, this is available online. You know, we mm. did a piece... It's a res- piece of research called Respect at Work. You can still get it on the... I think it's on the BBC Trust website. Um, so it's still available. I was looking at it the other day, actually, because I was working with a company who are in the fashion industry who are facing their own kind of questions around this right now so um i was looking back at it and and um and and what was fascinating to me was that the harassment piece existed in in a very small um couple of areas but in the vast majority that wasn't the case but there were some concerns about bullying behavior um so that's where we focused our our attention so you know is is the bbc a place where another savile could happen i absolutely don't believe that to be the case. I don't think that Savile would happen again in the BBC. You don't think there's power personalities? No, I was going to go on to Mm. say, though, I think that in an environment where you have incredibly powerful people in roles that are, um, you know, you only have to look at things like Jeremy Clarkson. Weinstein. uh, Exactly. So, Mm. you know, that kind of, you know, they are incredibly powerful and you have a lot of younger, junior people who are desperate to be in that particular industry, 
there is always going to be the potential for negative behaviours. Um, and I think what's fascinating for me is when you look at the kind of the, the you know, Harvey Weinstein, I don't know this man, but one would imagine that Harvey Weinstein didn't start out behaving like that. What he will have pressed, he will have pushed the boundaries and he won't have been stopped. And so he'll have pushed them further and yeah, he still won't yes. have been stopped. And too many people let him do that. Exactly. That and yeah. so what I think is a, is, a, um, is, a, is a lesson for industries is that where you, where you see those behaviours beginning to emerge in somebody who is gaining in power is to, is to push back really hard early yeah. on. So, OK, so let's look at Uber. Uber, under its ex-CEO, um, was very much that bro culture, you know, um, and no one could push back against him because he was doing so well. I mean, how do you... It, it becomes nearly impossible to push back against and that type of person, doesn't you're it? You're right, it's sort of about power, power and influence. Yeah. And, and I had a, a minor rant online this morning about influencers, this horrible word that's been given to people on the internet who achieve a significant following who can then manipulate them in the interests of commerce. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's one of the complex things about Jimmy Savile and the BBC was the whole celebrity culture, that the media are the engine that creates that and it gives them disproportionate power, which they then abuse by saying, don't you know who I am, sort of thing. And it worries me, it saddens me that the internet, which could have been different and to me still is different, has become polluted by that media mindset, which is about celebrity, leverage, manipulation and undue influence. And, again, I think we have a choice. You know, we're at one of those steps in the path where we can choose to go one way or the other and I think it takes more people being less passive and complacent about it to say this is enough, this is not a good place to be ending up. I think the Me Too was a start. What do you guys think of the Gillette ad that came out then? Best the man can be. It's interesting because my husband and I have talked about this and and, and I, I watched it and I really enjoyed the advert. I thought it was very powerful and um, I couldn't see what the fuss was about. Yep. Having spoken to my husband, he said, oh, I can see. It's kind of, um, it's quite patronising. It's assuming that lots of men um, behave badly and I can see why people are upset. But from a female perspective, I, I, I just thought it was great. I just worry about marketing generally. <laughs> um, okay. In the sense that these banking ads that you get at the moment, which are supposedly real people writing poems or old ladies. <laughs> I just, Clearly I don't watch enough ads. Well, I, well, I try really hard not to, but occasionally I get suckered into being there when they're on. But, you know, it's just this disingenuous attempt to be authentic. And, and things like the Gillette ad, I think, are an example of that. Well, here's something that people care about. We'll, we'll make sure that our company's on the right side of the yeah, well, I, 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 think, think, I think that's fair. I but I do think fair. Gillette run out. They can't have had a six-blade razor, can they? Or a seven-blade razor. They've right, just run exactly. out. I mean, how many yeah. more blades can they add? You know, we started off with two when I started shaving, and now we're on five. Yeah. So well, they, I, I solved know, the problem with so getting a beard. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, there you go. But, you know, they had to do something. And I, yeah. I mean... You know, uh, I sat down and talked with Jill about it and, and I, I, I looked at it and said, I don't have an issue with any of this. It, what you had was men stepping in in that environment within the ad. There was bullying, so yeah. a man stepped in. Yeah. There was there was a bunch of guys going, boys will be boys, but one man stepped forward. And yeah. I don't think, I don't, get, I don't get the male backlash to it. And I don't see it. No, it I don't it wasn't no. patronising to men. It wasn't saying, 
you know, women are having a go. It wasn't that. Now, there's ads on telly that I get really angry about where it's like men are so stupid and women will fix it for you. And I, and I think if that was the other way around, there would be an absolute uproar. Yeah. And th- I think there's a law just been brought in that says now in advertising you can't have that gender-specific role anymore. So you can't have women ironing and you can't have men doing DIY. I don't know how that's going to work out. Um, but OK, let's, let's move it slightly forward. Um, if we've got this new world, new culture, what does work mean in this new world? What is work these days? What do you define as work? Is that going to collect a paycheck or what? Well, sorry. No, go. Well, I just got to, I'm actually taking place in a workplace conference next week and they asked me, so it touches all these topics because they asked me to promote the conference. Which I feel uncomfortable. Promote, doing, but, promote, go. Yeah, well, exactly. But no, I'm not going to because oh, that makes okay. But that, online, that makes me feel uncomfortable because I'm abusing my network by promoting something that's in my interest. So I don't do it. Oh, um, okay, so I'm a that's blanket good. rule on that. Um, but it's about the workplace, and so I filmed the video they asked me to film while I was out on a walk in the snow, um, basically saying I can now work here. I'm making this video here. It's of a high definition quality. I can send it to you. I can have my emails. I can have my phone calls. So basically, I can work anywhere I choose and I can work for whoever I choose and the topic is workplace and I wondered the other day why the topic of workplace left me cold every time and it's because I hope never to work in a workplace again even a trendy one like we work because it's still a managed environment that's that's not allowing me to be the best that I can be or at least not allowing me to make the decisions as to what will make me the best that I can be and so I think especially as automation starts to nibble away at, if not get rid of a lot of the process, routine, bureaucratic jobs that many people are currently employed in, to in, to attract smart people, you're going to have to give them that level of freedom and autonomy. And this doubles back to the conversation we were having about HR and, and culture and trust. And, and trust, totally. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we need to be careful of <clears throat> of having the lens of, you know, kind of, people of of our age that have got to a place where we're doing multiple things and knowledge economy and the kind of work that that we are privileged enough to do you know there are still the vast majority of people are not in those kind of roles they have set hours they perhaps don't have the uh, option to do things in different and innovative ways they don't have a huge amount of flexibility but do they want to some people just don't want to and they'll find themselves having that if we're not careful yeah so um (coughs) Well, I think, you know, the, 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 the research that I've come across suggests that the things that make people feel better about their work, uh, including things like, you know, my, my employer kind of shows an interest in my career and, and um, actually the, that autonomy and flexibility is way up there. And so I think we can be much broader with our definition of flexible working. You know, flexible working has been seen as part-time you know, yeah. yeah by working yeah. less hard you know <laughs> uh, people do air quotes don't they when they kind yes. of talk about I'm working, working from, from home, home yes. you know as if you know oh really oh really um whereas the flexible working or um, agile working whatever we want to call it that that I think we can get excited about is people working in ways that play to their strengths in in um, at a time that suits them best in using different types of technology that enables them to work in different places um, working with different groups of people having more than one occupation you know we're seeing more and more companies that are trying to attract 
yeah, the so-called digital um, employee, digital talent. And they're saying to me, you know, actually what we realised that, that was the hook for them was the ability for them to also do their DJing, to do their start-up, to work with a charity, to, to run, you know, to do their freelancing. Um, so businesses that I think are in the space where they need to recognise that they need more digital talent, younger talent, um, the more they can embrace the broader definition of flexible working, the better it will be for them. Yeah, I mean, Perpetual Guardian, have you heard, you, you probably heard of them, the New Zealand company yeah. that's, you know, implemented now. It started a, a trial last year of a, putting in a four-day week but paying still for five days. And they, the results of that trial was that they had a 20% increase in productivity. Mm-hmm. Um, the only downside it was that everyone wanted off the Monday or yeah, everyone wanted yeah. off the Thursday. Yeah. But, but they managed <clears throat> to balance that. Um, is that the future? Is that uh, well? I, I think it's great. Um, Patagonia do something where they have uh, twenty six weeks of the year. You get a three day weekend. Um, I'm thinking, oh yeah, I could do that. But I think again, it's quite parental. Mm-hmm. You know, I was it's, just, say it's you know, it's, it's yeah. like do you remember dress down Fridays? Oh yeah, you know, yeah. you know, on yeah. Fridays you get to wear your own clothes. You know, <laughs> and um, well, that was weird at the BBC because the IT community when they came in all wore suits, which to us was quite alien because we were all determinedly casual. And then on a Friday, they would look like us. And then on a Monday, going back to looking weird again. Yeah, well, I never wore anyone else's clothes. That was okay. (laughs) I know, it's such a strange expression, isn't it? You can wear your own clothes. But but I think it's this idea that um, we will shape your week. We will Mm. shape your day. We will will control your hours. So I get what it's trying to do, and I think it's a good thing, which is saying, actually... Are we as efficient as we can be? Um, probably not. And if we are working less and enjoying our home life more and being in the office for fewer hours, that's got to be a good thing. But it's still quite a traditional model and view of what employment is. Mm, and yeah. and actually, I want to work when I want to work. But that's why you run your own business. Exactly, exactly. And I think this need for greater autonomy, greater control is something that we're seeing more of rather than I just want more free time. I think that, yeah, it's great. But I think things like if you live in big cities now, um, the commute is just getting worse and worse and worse. People can't cope with it. In in not too short a period, we will have um, young people going, what, you all used to go in at the same time? And then you'd all go home at the same time. That's mm. mental. Why would you do that? Yes. Because, yes. of course, it doesn't make a huge amounts of sense. So I think, um, you know, other pressures are encouraging us to think differently. And uh, I think ultimately where we want to get to is people working in, uh, playing to their strengths, working in, in, at a rhythm and a, and a time frame that, that works for them, in places that, works for, that work for them. Some people love to come into a workplace. They love to see their colleagues and friends. Work is a hugely social thing. We are group creatures. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So just saying, oh, you know, you can work at home, it doesn't suit everybody. Some people choose to come in. So I think, you know, creating spaces where people can do their best work, um, that I think is a much more exciting idea around autonomy and flexibility. Ewan hates people. He goes (laughs) off in a truck (laughs) on his own, climbs mountains, never talks to anyone. No, I'm just very selective. (laughs) 
Oh, okay. Sorry. Is that what it was? <laughs> okay, sorry. But you know, but you know, they, so you, so you know, this kind of thing where you know, again, it's very parental view. So mm. you know, it was like we all had um, our own offices, and then every, it was like, right, now this is a bad thing. This is a bad thing. We've got to be open plan because people That's have right, got to collaborate. Totally. So we chucked yeah. everybody into these horrendous <clears throat> open plan offices, and then it was like, oh no, 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 we've got to collaborate far <laughs> more, right. and this is barri- these are barriers. So now we'll create loads of open working collaboration yeah. spaces. Well, the reality is, is that sometimes you want to collaborate and sometimes you actually That's just right. need to think quietly. And w- So finally, organisations are waking up to this idea. You need different types of spaces for different wo- yeah. types of work and different personalities. But you, you were also right when you pushed back slightly against me by saying that not everybody's in the privileged position that we are of having that choice at the mm-hmm. moment. And, you know, I have people saying, pushing back against me, saying, well, it's unreasonable to expect people to think especially at work, um, in the sense that we've got this culture where work is something that you put up with, unpleasant, uh, You just do. Uh, you, you do, do You do work, and then your real life and your real self is left at the door and you put the uniform on. <laughs> and that's still such a widespread attitude that, again, I think we can't just leave them to... You know, we just can't pull the plug and expect them to get on with these changes. I think you have to give people the, the support and the help to make that shift to greater autonomy. And I think the, the moral... The moral piece for employers is to really think about the responsibility they they have to these people who are working in jobs where they are just turning up, not having to think, just doing what's asked of them, working hard, going home at the end of the day, because those are the jobs that will go with automation. So when I'm doing a conference at HR, I use a slide of the um, Luddites when they were breaking up the weaving machines and saying that's going to be your staff in five or ten years' time because they can read the Sunday supplements just as well as you can and they know that this is heading towards them and, yeah. and mincing your words and talking about creativity and innovation and collaboration is not fooling anybody because they yeah. know it's a bottom line that's yeah. approaching. Yeah, right. yeah, the expression is what can be digitised will be digitised. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And, and what, what processes. So, yeah. um, so, okay, that leads me on to a question for you both. If, if AI and digitisation and all of that, um, there's a great book by Nuri uh, Yuval uh, called Sapiens and Homer Deus and his 21 Rules for the mm-hmm. 21st Century. And in it, he describes 80% of the workforce as the great unwanted, not the great unemployed, the great unwanted. Fundamentally, we are moving people out of process, okay? And I can understand from an economic point of view, we, we, we've got capitalism wrong, right? Capitalism 1.0 is so wrong now, it's, it's all about profit maximisation. So all these nice words that we've been talking about, about in, you know, encouraging people and, and giving them space to grow and all those things all get washed away when the share price takes a dip, when the board suddenly goes to the CEO, the numbers aren't hitting the line, and suddenly it's right, let's get rid of people. I mean, House, which is an online app, has just got rid of 180 people. They're about to IPO, but those 180 people who helped them grow to that point, superfluous. So any nice words they might have said to those people don't really stand true. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we've got to now is where actually as an accountant, you know, they'll say, um, there's two problems. I can take a machine, I can amortise that over time, and it's a, a downscaling cost. I can take a human, and that's an upscaling cost that comes with all the HR problems that might have sickness, leave, pay rises. But I can automate that. You know, JDCom in America, uh, in China has a factory with 200,000 boxes are moved around every day. Five people run that factory, mm-hmm. and not one of them touches the boxes. They're to touch the machine. So. 
we talk about allowing people this space, this time, but actually the, the trend is we're, we're getting rid of people. Mm. That's, that's fundamentally the bottom line, however you dress it up. Yeah, I mean, I think we, you know, we, we see these horror stories of the factory, you know, the, where the lights aren't even on because they don't need to because they don't have any Robots people Robots don't in need it. them, yeah. yeah. Um, and we, you know, hear about you know, huge swathes of people being made redundant. And, um, and but actually... The automation of people's roles is r- still not anywhere near where it will get to. You know, it is still relatively slow. We hear the horror stories, or in, if you're a, you know, if you're a futurist and you just say, well, that's inevitable. But it, it at the moment, what we're seeing is it's not whole jobs going. It is part of people's jobs and sometimes you might say actually it's the process it's the transactional part of your role which may be the less interesting part of your role so um, I think we shouldn't be too uh, terrified immediately I think we have a little bit of time but we don't have much time because I think when it happens it will suddenly happen you know I was with the head of Uh, computer science at Liverpool University a couple of years ago and she was talking about the fact that they have computer programs now that can uh, mirror legal judgments civil legal judgments with 95% accuracy medical diagnoses so it's not this idea of the kind of you know the the blue collar worker necessarily in some cases it will be the white collar worker yeah they are um, under threat they are absolutely under threat and not just the bureaucratic ones i mean some of the managerial roles so i mean you'll know that in hr chatbots are becoming more of a thing and they're fallible they're not great at the moment but i was at a conference in sydney with uh, people about workplace and 60 in the audience and i said how many of you would prefer interacting with a chatbot on a daily basis than your current line manager more than half the room put their hands up Because there were elements of that relationship that didn't work, and a yeah. quick answer from well, a chatbot they, would they, be better. As they, you know? as they are able to uh, develop empathy, mm. you know, as, as as robots or AI are able to develop, you know, emotional intelligence um, or replicate emotional intelligence, mm. then why wouldn't you? Mm. You know, if you're able to access that. Um, so I can't remember where I was going with this, but I, I think that that we we have to recognize that it, it there is an inevitability about it but i think it is it it is not something that is part of most of our of our reality just yet um the thing that you mentioned about getting rid of people i do think we need to also recognize that your employer is not your family hmm. you know that's a very traditional view but going back to what i said you know I mean, when I was in Microsoft, that is the goal. You know, the campus is there. It's the food. It's the nice bean bags. It's the well, sit you say, here. You say that's the goal. That, that's that's to that's keep the, you on, keep you at work all the time. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, but but I think there is a a difference. So there's a um, a guy who set up LinkedIn, uh, Reid Hoffman. I yeah. really really like his thinking, and he he's written a book called The Alliance. Uh, there's also a very uh, five-minute video of it so just in case you okay. don't want to read the whole thing which is much more up my street but uh but he talked about the alliance and the new relationship which is instead of in the old days you know the bbc would be classic you know you go mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. your idea is to stay there as long as you possibly can ideally to retirement and you get your pension you well that's not the case and that's not necessarily a bad thing it, we see that as a kind of a, as an immoral, bad thing, the hard, tough employer, but actually it enables people to make different types of choices, experience different careers, move around, diff, go to different types of employers. They're not stuck. You know, a lot of people that I've worked with who have, st- who have, who have been in an organisation for 20 years, 25 years. How long were you at the BBC, Ewan? 21. Yes, yeah, sorry. Incredibly, <laughs> but incredibly resentful, actually. Were you? 
Well, er, er, earlier Lucy asked me what I regret. Did I regret anything about leaving the BBC? And I said not doing it sooner. Right. Now... But I you're the sort of person who I would never have expected to stay 20 years in an organisation. Well, no, I was, well, that's where I was sort of going, because I think in its, at its best, the BBC allowed you to be entrepreneurial, to, to, to operate almost like a small startup, or, okay. you know, within its confines. So when it got it right, I thought it was pretty good at doing this. But, um, but you know, it's, it's a big organisation as mm-hmm. well. But, uh, but actually, something you said, Lucy, there about it's not in our current focus, if you like, or something like that, around the, the challenges of some of this. And that, that, that worries me, because at the moment, we, we've got a situation where the technologists are running ahead at a rate of knots, and, and they're building this stuff, and they're coding this stuff. And increasing the val- increasingly, the values of an organisation will be coded into its systems by people who don't really understand culture or people or whatever. And yeah. likewise, the people who do understand culture are standing back going, oh, I don't do technology. So that really worries me on a societal level, that we're, we're I don't think, not stepping up, we're not, we're not stepping up quickly enough to address these issues, get over the nervousness about technology and actually talk about the fact that it's not about tools, it's well, about life. Well, Amazon had a, an AI, for going back to something you said earlier, Lucy, that they had an AI for recruiting. And strangely, 80% of women failed on this test. And it was written by men for men to recruit men. Now, it wasn't intentionally written, but they looked at the AI and the algorithm. Bias, yeah, mean. unconscious yeah. bias. And they've worked out, of course, women were going, they no, no. It in. Yeah. That's right. And, and the problem we have got, taking your point, is, you know, how are we going to, I mean, you know, the Facebook algorithm is, is so a black right, box. already the there. Google one. That's right. You know, um, the famous case of Google um, facial recognition not recognising people of mm-hmm. colour because they, they thought they were apes. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that even Whereas starts. you look at something like HireVue, which is a software that's been used by Unilever, Vodafone Retail, amongst others, and uh, it basically uh, enables you to send a video in and it kind of looks at your facial gestures and can spot what you're passionate about. It can, says it can tell whether you're lying or not, which is quite interesting, a bit scary. Or creepy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, but they, they've used it, and obviously they've got the algorithm right because the not only has it saved them huge amounts of money, speeded up the process and made it a much more... Um, people saying they really like the new process, but they have got the most diverse group of entry-level candidates that they've ever had. So, it, but mm-hmm. it has to... But I think, you know, you're both saying the same thing, which is this isn't something that you just wait to be given as an yeah. HR person you've That's got right. to get involved and say what you want because the technologists can do it for you mm-hmm. but you need to be talking about how this is going to be reflective of your culture totally. so does HR lead this and this is where I come back to you know let's come back to disruptive HR you know are you going in because you're, you talked about talking to business leaders but but where within the culture line do you stop do you go all the way down I mean are all the points we've discussed part of HR now? You know, is it from leadership at the top through to activism and speaking up at the bottom through to the the DNA, you know, and, and, and all of that? Yeah, I mean, that was one of the, the things I loved <clears throat> about being an HR director was, was the breadth of, because ultimately organisations are people. There are very few organisations now like the factory we described. <laughs> but they're becoming know. more like that. Yeah, but, but even so, there are people behind those factories, okay. you yeah, know, so there are, so actually, you know, all of that stuff, you know, from the ethics to the impact of AI to individual leadership decisions, the culture of the organisations, that, you know, these are all things that HR ought to have a view on 
ought to have a watching brief on, ought to be involved in. Unfortunately, I don't think that many chief execs see their HR director no, as being as being the yeah. person to lead or even sometimes having a view on that. Because that, that's, that's a frustration expressed a lot by HR people, that they don't have a seat at the top table. But, a friend but that used put, to be the same with IT directors. I was going to say, but a friend of mine pushes back and says, well, that's because you don't deserve the seat at the top table. At the moment, you don't have the breadth of understanding of the business drivers or the technology or whatever. So are else. HR people having to go back to school? Is that what we're saying? Do they need to change? I, I, I've often said I think the right group... I'd be more comfortable with HR leading this than IT. That's for sure. But they're not... But that's because it has the word human in it. Because that's what matters, yeah. But also, I think we see HR directors who are coming from not just a, an HR background, but having a marketing background, having an operational background, mm. um, sometimes even a finance background or a tech background. And and actually, that, that breadth is giving them greater confidence and greater credibility. If your HR person is only offering you a narrow professional view of employment legislation, the grievance policy, the process for uh, X, Y and Z, then then clearly you're not going to turn to them. So I think chief execs get the HR departments they deserve because, you know, some chief execs will say to me, you know, I'm terrified of my HR person. Can you come in and help me almost get rid of them? Um, not very often, but, you know, it has happened. And you think, hold on a minute, you know, you appointed that person. So uh, chief execs need to be much more engaged in what they want from HR. I can count on one hand the amount of rich strategic um, conversations I've had with my chief executives around the people function. Less than 5% of, of chief execs have an HR background, so they don't know what good looks like. So I think, mm. you know, it starts with the chief exec saying, actually, we, I want to really invest in somebody that is super smart, that uh, has a broad view, that has a view on all of these elements and is not a process person, but is a people expert. You know Billions? You know the television series Billions? Yep. Do you see it? Yeah. Well, you know the, um, the, the uh, hedge fund has this character called Wendy, who is really looking at... She's not a process person. No. She's a psychologist. She's a coach. She's somebody that can understand the conditions in which people can thrive and excel. She is a challenge to the chief executive she to me that's the kind of yeah. modern hr director um appreciate it's a completely fictional character <laughs> but <laughs> it has fire. to start somewhere <laughs> has to start somewhere exactly but at its best it can look like that and i see really fantastic hr directors hr yeah. professionals who want to be part of that part of the solution who see themselves as creating the conditions where people can thrive perform well be more agile collaborative and so on and much less about the process because guess what AI is taking over that side of stuff too. Are, are, so, the, are, are the labels a problem? Because, you know, the way you just described that was, was a set of characteristics which could be applicable to somebody from technology, from IT, from business. From, but we label, don't we? And we, mm. we oh, you're HR, therefore you are people. And you're technology, therefore you are machines. And I think the problems actually straddle those conventional boundaries and, and I sometimes think their structures are, our current structures and silos are mitigating against Yeah, I mean every, every silo this. or every you know departmental structure has its issues doesn't mm. it and I think increasingly as I mentioned those departmental boundaries make much less sense mm. there's a great um, book by, by Jacob Morgan, I don't know if you've come across him um, Jacob Morgan writes about the employee experience and the advantage the employee experience advantage is his latest book I think and he talks about a tripart relationship between um, HR, technology, 
and also workplace, you know, mm-hmm. facilities management would be the old expression, and that ultimately they need to work in tandem to uh, create the right culture, to create the, yeah. the right experiences for people that, you know, that work there. And I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. Okay, I w- I, we've got 15 minutes. That's all we got left. It's gone <laughs> fast. I want to cover two uh, topics. One, Generation Z, uh, the young coming in. Now, you and you wrote this week about your daughter um, taking up psychology and sociology and, and the ologies. Yeah, she was doing right. the ologies. Not real subjects. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> that's what your father said, but that's not true. Um, and we were talking about the skills that HR people need. Can I throw it out to both of you? What skills do the young need? Because if it's not going to be the, you know, the the mathematics and the sciences, I mean, because that's going to be the 1% of engineers who want to do that, and it's not everyone's bag, um, what skills should the young be looking for if they're going into that workplace? What what would you suggest? I, I think it's fascinating, this idea of the polymath. I, I saw. Um, Can you of, describe what that means first? So I, I saw uh, the head of Google talking about this, and he described, and, and Steve Jobs used to talk about this as well, which is that that ultimately the future is a blend of science and art, and we had it. We had it in the Victorian era. I think it was um, uh, Lewis Carroll. So the author of Alice in Wonderland was also a maths professor. There was know. a lot of drugs around then as well. Okay, yeah, all right. So let's... Make, Just thought I'd mention that. There's probably on. quite a lot of drugs around today as well. But, okay. Um, so I think that it's this idea that we separate this stuff out, you know, and, and you described mm. it in terms of HR and tech and never the twain shall meet, whereas actually the future belongs to, mm. to both of them. Um, we had it in the BBC with the television department Ooh. and the online department and, right. and actually the two of them would, would see each other as, as kind of you know a threat or that uh, was just budgets <laughs> yeah but it well was that's also... a reality that yeah that's a non-trivial comment yeah. I think because money drives behaviors yeah. yeah, I had the, I had the same in gateway we had yeah. me running the online e-commerce business for gateway and then I had a guy called Mike Maloney running the call center and God help him he would not give me a penny of his budget because he saw it as weakening his Absolutely. And in the BBC, which is, you know, doesn't make its own money, it gets given money through the licence fee, that having the budget is a big deal. But the reality was is that, who, you know, who owned the future? That's what they were fighting for. And, of course, it wasn't owned by the television crew and it wasn't owned by the online. It was owned by a partnership, which now through things like iPlayer you can see is really working. But that's very threatening for people. That collaboration is very threatening. Um, so I think that um, if not the ability to straddle not just the arts or the science you know when i was growing up it was you know do you do the do you do maths and science or do you do humanities i think schools universities need to recognize that actually that blend of capabilities is is is, is going to be hugely beneficial in the future um yeah and i would add a third one to that um, which is, well, the words are not right, but something around spirituality, something around meaning and purpose, because I think that's, we play out our lives at work, most of us. We discover ourselves at work, we shape ourselves and the world around us at work. And that, I think, for Gen Z is a much more obvious factor, that the idea of a job is problematic, um, the idea of those siloed disciplines is problematic, but they want to have impact. They want to make the world a better place um, to a degree that wasn't true of the millennials. You know, the millennials, yeah, they knew how to use their phone, but they didn't change the world sort of thing. But I think Gen Z is much more sceptical, 
uh, about the world of work, but that, that makes me excited for the future. And, and you know, certainly my my kids are much more thoughtful than I certainly was at their age about the kind of world that they want to live in. Um, so for me, that has always been the excitement about the technology because it disintermediates. It gives them that choice, that ability to leverage the way the future looks. Um, so the other, so can I just one, add yeah, one more absolutely. attribute that I think you know we need to be looking for in our younger people is, which is something that perhaps we didn't have to demonstrate, is a relentless curiosity. Curiosity, yeah, huge. Yeah, I think that's that's, yeah. the, that's you know if you're is that the fault of education now. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a scary fact, isn't it, that, that we, are, we are still educating in the way that we've pretty Victorian much always, we've yeah. always educated. And, you know, if you're teaching somebody um, something, you know, in, in maths today, how relevant will it be for them in, in, you know, 20 years' time? I don't know. But if you can instill in people a relentless curiosity, then you, you stand, stand a fighting yeah. chance. And we see organisations, Red Bull would be a good example, where that kind of relentless curiosity is something that they look for at interview because almost you can teach the other stuff, but if you haven't... I saw uh, Clive Woodward, you know, the... Um, or you will know, God. He was my first Claire. school teacher. Really? Yeah, I at Loughborough. Yeah, I called him sir before anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> and he talks about rocks and sponges, doesn't he? You know, and how yeah. it, when he was looking for talent in, in, in the World Cup squad that, that, that it was the sponge that he was looking for because actually if you've yeah, got somebody definitely. that is just you know I know it I've, I've done my learning then you are really you're really going to be in trouble so, so that again comes back to the, the idea of not knowing you know the Zen idea of not knowing um, beginner's mind all that sort of stuff yeah I, I think Bezos calls it step one yeah just being open day one day one doesn't he and, and, and curious so even just yesterday I was speaking to a friend about phones and the, the fact that I seem to know how I use my how to use my phone well that's because I kept pressing, pressing buttons to see what happened and she confessed that she was nervous about pressing buttons in case she broke it and I think that's true of our organisations as well. <laughs> Just yeah. keep, keep pressing buttons until something happens <laughs> and don't worry about breaking it. Yeah. So, crystal balling a little bit, do you see the office actually existing in 20 years' time? I think, you know, you pointed out that we are social animals and I think, you know, we will see, uh, we will see environments where people come and do work together. Whether that will be this company's individual office next door to that company's individual office or whether we'll see more of these kind of collaboration co-working spaces I mean, they're just they are they are creeping up and up and up um and i think it's that's quite an exciting um exciting move so yes i think people still because human nature ultimately won't change that quick uh, if ever you know it's a it's an animal thing that need to come together to uh, to see each other to be with each other i think that that will still happen um but i think it will not necessarily be the kind of offices we see in televisions like the office you know <laughs> yeah I mean, ricky only lives just next door by the way <laughs> well yeah i agree and, and contrary to your suspicions i actually like being with people but it, but it's, <laughs> it's the fact that i i like being with them I, I i get more you know i've only got so much face-to-face time left on the planet and, and the internet allows me to make better use of that because I spend more of my time with interesting, stimulating and creative people. And the spaces that I expect to be able to do that in have a feel to them. So I confessed earlier that I find the feel of WeWorks unpleasant. I don't, I don't enjoy it. I'm fascinated that we keep finalising the London skyline with glass and steel phallic symbols because what's that got to do with the future of the world of work? But I think much more human scale 
conducive environments which make it easier for people to have cracking conversations, then then yes, I think we'll, we'll, we'll need more of that. I mean, we went before the show, we went to that coffee place. Yeah. Coopers. Coopers, right? So um, from the outside, you think small little calf. You walk in and there was just an energy about it. People were working on their laptops. They were talking to one another. They were drinking coffee. They were. It was a fantastic, vibrant place. Now, you wouldn't want to be in there all day. No. no. Um, but as a, as a that kind of space. So I think we will still see the workplace, but it won't be as we know it. Okay. Before we sum up, I am going to play one track because I promised I would. (laughs) This is for Lucy. Um, Lucy, why this track? Because it's the first single I've ever had. Every now and again, I have to go to Mamma Mia and just get a burst of energy. Okay, when we come back, we're going to sum up a little bit of what we've been talking about today. But here's Abba.
to go a little bit of ABBA for Thank you there? Thank you for indulging me. <laughs> Bob will be playing it tonight, I'm sure. No, he's watching the Liverpool game he's tonight. He's up at Liverpool, yeah. Excellent. Come on, Liverpool. We can't get this title over the line this year. <laughs> 26 years of pain. Um, right, well, I'm going to just sum up a little bit. Um, so today we've really talked about, I guess, HR's role. It is changing dramatically. The work, workplace is changing. Work itself is changing. Um, society is changing. It's all changing. But um, you still think there's hope for us all? We're not all going to be slaves to the machine? No, I think it's really exciting, actually. I, I think that if we are... We're having to be much more... Uh, aware of human needs um, in the workplace, um, either because millennials are demanding it um, or because we can't get the talent that we need if we don't or because the, you know, the, the physical environment that we're working is, is, is changing so rapidly. So uh, I think it's actually really exciting. I think we've all suffered in really boring process crazy environments where we all sat in banks of desks um, like battery hens for a long, long time and, and actually work could be a lot more enjoyable as a result. And it could be a portfolio of work. Yeah. Yeah. Ewan? It could go either way. <laughs> okay. In the sense that I... <laughs> Thanks for leaving us on that positive <laughs> note there. Get, get, yeah, I'm getting there. In the sense that, I, you know, I think we have in so many ways, you know, politics, society, work, an old world crumbling and, and becoming less relevant and less applicable faster than we're building the new one and so I get worried about the need for people to get more involved more quickly Well, we've run out of time I'm afraid. Lucy, thank you so much for coming it's in today. It's been an absolute pleasure Thank you. Ewan, thanks for co-hosting with me anytime, as ever. Sam. You're welcome back, both of you, anytime you like Thank you Sam, that show was amazing To listen again, please visit our website, marlofm.co.uk or visit our Facebook group Sam Talks Technology. And now you can subscribe on iTunes. Never miss a show again. See you next week. Same time, same place.